This episode of The Career Musician features Jeremy Levy, a Grammy-nominated composer, arranger, orchestrator that has worked in nearly every medium in L.A. for over the past decade. With a Grammy nom for one of his songs off of his album The Planets, Reimagined, a modern big band jazz reinterpretation of the famous classical suite by Gustav Holst, Jeremy stays busy. As an orchestrator, he has added his musical touch to a variety of film, TV, and video game scores, including The Queen's Gambit, Disney's Frozen, 2, the Lego Movie 2, the second part, Ant-Man and the Wasp, and as an arranger, he has written for the National Symphony Orchestra featuring Babyface, which is where he and I met initially. I was the music director for that show. Nonetheless, Jeremy is keeping his roster full of nothing but the biggest names in the biz right here on the Career Musician Podcast with yours truly, Nomad. Well, Jeremy Levy, welcome to the Career Musician Podcast. Glad to be here. Absolutely, man. So we have a kind of a cool story of how we met. Uh, I had been working for Kenny Babyface Edmonds for some, time, for some time as his music director. And Tim Davies was contracted to be the arranger, orchestrator, and conductor for uh, Babyface's concert at the Kennedy Center with the National Symphony Orchestra. And at the time, of course, you did uh, quite a bit of the orchestrating and arranging with Tim. Yeah. And I believe that we were rehearsing at Center Staging here in Burbank. And on the first day, you, you and I had been going back and forth via correspondence on emails, you know, making sure to, you know, all the music was intact and whatnot. But on the first day of actual physical rehearsals, the keyboard player in our band got sick. Oh, you know, you're, you're, you're mixing this up with Jordan. With Jordan, right, right. Right. But at the same time, and this is this part of my story. Oh, okay. Because that's when I had met both of you guys. It was Jordan and yourself. And the joke is that between Tim and I, I always got you guys confused. Ah, okay. <laughs> you both have J names, right? Yeah. I would always say, no, 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 you're talking about Jordan. And then when I would say something else about an arrangement that you did, he would say, no, you mean Jeremy. And I'm like, oh, it's Right. <laughs> I just know you have two guys that work for you and they both have J names. So anyway, yeah, that's our story. <laughs> Jordan, Jordan is a much better pianist. <laughs> well, yeah, he's a piano player by trade. And, and then by trade, if you were, what would be your primary instrument? Is trombone. Trombone. Gotcha. Yeah. And that explains the lush trombone arrangements on your beautiful, uh, uh, Grammy nominated piece. Um, the planets reimagined. Oh, thanks. Yeah. I was just listening to that before this uh, podcast. And man, it's just, it's so cool. It's like the perfect ethereal jazz vibe. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm still like, sometimes I look back and just like wonder, like, how did this happen? You know, like, you know, it is, you've, you've written something, like, you get to a point after the point where like, you don't remember writing it, you know? <laughs> right. It's like, wow, I, I did this over like, I think the writing took about like nine months like doing the arrangements in between like actual paid work, you know, <laughs> so like I'm, I'm doing like film orchestration stuff with Tim and then we'll have like a couple weeks off or something in between projects. I'll switch back over and start writing these arrangements. That's and, cool. uh, it eventually got done. Yeah. Well, that's, that's one of the questions I was going to ask you. So I definitely want to get back to that. Let's rewind a little bit. Let's make sure we get all of the information about you, Mr. Jeremy Levy. And we just discussed that. <laughs> in <laughs> detail. So it is Levy. And I like the way you put it. The Levites, it stems from that, right? So, uh, as far that, as I know of, yeah. It's awesome. It helps me remember it anyway. All right. So, uh, one of the things I love to ask my guests to start off is, you know, how you became a musician. How did the bug bite you? Because we all know being a musician at times can be extremely difficult. So. Yeah. <laughs> sure, sure. So, should I go way back on this one? <laughs> sure. All right. Give us the Sure. Whatever you feel, you know. Um, I think like the, uh, the legend, if you will, <laughs> there's like photos of me, like on my dad's lap. My dad was, um, my dad was a, like a chemist who worked at a pharmaceutical plant and we're from Hannibal, Missouri. He was a lab manager there. And he also played like just, you know, a little bit of guitar, a little bit of piano, a little bit of, we had like a world tour organ in the house. So there's photos of me sitting on his lap and I'm like three or four, like, you know, kind of plunking away on the organ. Um, and then they saw that I was interested in that. My brother is uh, two years older than me. He also started piano lessons around the same time. So I think they got us in to piano like when we were both around like age five. Yeah. Uh, so I took it off from there doing piano. Then like a lot of kids, I like, quit because I got bored with it. 
Um, and then when middle school came back around, then I got interested in playing music again. And then uh, I ended up picking up the trombone there. And then it was kind of stuck. And uh, it was kind of off to the races. That's so cool, man. I, I have a similar story. Middle school, I kind of I kind of lost interest. And then towards the end of middle school, I picked it back up. I think a lot of us can relate to that. That's yeah. an age period, you know, where... where yeah. Can- I mean, and the funny thing is, like, I, I, I distinctly remember I wanted to play trumpet. I didn't want to play trombone at first, but I think they ran out of trumpets at the school or something. And my band director was like, we still have trombones. Can you play this? You know, so like, they gave me a trombone and, you know, I can make some sound out of it. And then I picked it up like really fast. You got to love band teachers, man. They're always like, they know how to make it work with what they have, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So, I, okay. Sorry to keep doing this, but I have to bring it back because I played trombone for about a week. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm a guitar player, and when I saw Eddie Van Halen on MTV playing guitar, I was like, "That's it, I'm done. I'm going to be, yeah. you know, a guitar guy." But before that, I picked up trombone and again due, due to my band teacher, uh, and I brought it home. And I remember bringing it home, and my dad was excited, and the mouthpiece was, you know, that, you know, what is that? Yeah. About maybe an inch and a half in circumference, yeah. maybe, you know. And I'm like, "Geez!" So I was trying to learn my embouchure, how to how to do mm-hmm. that. It sounded so bad. I, I gave it back after a week. So <laughs> kudos to you. I want to know how the heck did you take to that naturally? Because it seems so difficult. Um, I mean, I think it's easier than like the smaller mouthpieces, honestly, like trumpet or French horn. Like I've like after the fact, I went back and learned to play trumpet and French horn in high school as well. After I, cause all brass instruments are basically the same. There's in, you know, different ranges and, you know, like trumpet has slide, then, you know, trumpet and horn have valves, but like they all basically work the same way. Um, so yeah, I find it actually much harder to play on the small mouthpieces. And by the way, I have I have decent sized lips as well, um, which I think always made it a little difficult for me to play trumpet and French horn. Um, so I, I always kind of gra- gravitated to low brass. I also played tuba. Um, I ended up playing like baritone, euphonium in college. You know, it's all the all the brass instruments really. Wow, wow. Now, did you start out with uh, traditional classical only, or were you introduced to jazz at an early point? Uh, jazz very early. Um, I, I did, I kind of did like a dual track, um, classical and jazz throughout most of my career until grad school. Um, but I started off in like, you know, in concert band, like you do in the middle school or whatever, or, you know, you're playing like little marching band songs or whatever they do. And everybody's like doubling their parts. Um, and then for whatever reason, I still don't understand why, but we had an amazing jazz program at my high school in uh, Hannibal, Missouri, like 20,000 people in the town. And for whatever reason, we had a full-time uh jazz program that was we had like it was actually like it wasn't before school started it was an actual class you know so there was a separate band program and a jazz band program two separate classes which is you know looking back now is amazing because that doesn't really exist in most schools um so we did that and like i started off originally there was like a dixieland traditional jazz band i learned to play in so i started playing trombone and doing all the kind of tailgate stuff that you kind of think of you know louis armstrong all that sort of stuff and then when i get into high school then i started in the actual like you know playing in a big band and that sort of thing. That that is that is unique for such a small population to have a dedicated jazz program. Yeah, it is. It's very odd. And I mean, I'll say a lot of it's just uh, the program was started by um, this guy Terry Boone, who was I think he was still around a little bit, but he was I think semi-retired. But he kind of started the program as far as I know of, and that was kind of handed off to my band director Craig Buck, who was also a jazz trombonist. Really, kind of set the whole thing up for me. It's it's really his fault. <laughs> That's pretty cool, man. He he showed me the way. That's so awesome. And I love the fact that you give him credit. Thank you for that. Um, so, because uh, without our teachers, where would we, where would we be? Right. You know, for, Oh yeah, completely. Us. Yeah. Uh, you know, one of the biggest things for me was always studying, you know, bebop theory and, and, and jazz improvisation. Did you, from a young age, it's challenging, you know, 12, 13, 14. Yeah. It could be challenging. How did you dive into that? And and did was that the same teacher that helped you, you know, get immersed in that? Um, a little bit. I mean, the bebop stuff, I feel like I didn't really start to take seriously or really understand until college. Um, I, I remember, you know, like we, we basically began to like improvise on blues, you know, like I think most kids probably do. Like I, I remember the moment of like transitioning over from like you're playing and like you're trying to, you know, play the blues scale and it feels like everything is going by at 100 miles an hour and like you can't keep up, you know. And then all of a sudden something clicks, everything slows down, like, you know, exactly where you are in the form of the piece, you know. And right. that's, that's a, a very specific memory I have of like, okay, this this is how this works. And like, I, I, 
I sometimes feel like I'm waiting for the moment and other things I don't know how to do. You know, like when you're learning how to do something, there's always a moment where like, you know how to do it. And like, I remember that moment so strongly with improvising that like, sometimes I, I think I get hung up when I can't find that moment, like learning to do like, um, like, I don't know, like skiing or, you know, or a sport or any other thing where there's like a, there's like a real skill set, you know? Right. Like that, that epiphany. Yeah. That makes total sense. All right. So, uh, so now you're studying that you go into college, you, like you said, you, you kind of doing both, you know, your traditional and your jazz. Where did you go to college? Um, so I went to undergrad at the university of Missouri in Kansas city. So they had a classical conservatory there. They had like a small jazz program on the side, but um, when I was still there, it wasn't credited yet. It actually, they, they have an actual jazz program now with like a full like master's degree and everything as well. Um, but that was not there. So I did a classical trombone degree doing performance so on the one hand, I'm studying like, you know, classical trombone, playing in the orchestra, the wind band, learning all the classical repertoire and all that sort of thing. And then on the side, I'm playing in the jazz band and trios and then playing gigs in, in Kansas City, you know, playing in wedding bands and going out of the Blue Room at 18th and Vine and, you know, sitting in every night and doing all that stuff you do. So I kind of got the best of both there, you know, which is pretty nice. Well, Kansas City is, is a big jazz town. I mean, you know. It right? is. It still does, yeah. Charlie Parker being born there, right? That's the whole yeah. lineage. Kind yeah, of I mean, there's there, there's Charlie Parker, um, Count Basie basically came out of there. There's a huge legacy of like that sort of style of like big band. Where, like, this is something I, I actually, I don't think I've really experienced anywhere except for Kansas City, but like they'll still have like riff bands where like, you'll be playing in a big band and like they'll call it to, and let's say they'll call it standard. And like the band just like comes up with an arrangement on the spot where like, you know, you'll start playing the thing. And then, like, somebody in the section will start playing a riff, and then the section will harmonize the riff, and then the trumpets will, like, do the same thing, but, like, a counterpoint line, and, like, by the end, you've got a chart. And it's just all by ear. It's, uh, it's, it's a really cool thing that is, I feel, has been lost in a lot of other worlds. That's so awesome. On, on the spot arranging, huh? That's so cool. Yeah. That, that is amazing. All right. So what took you out west from that point, then? Um, so I didn't go west quite yet. I went east first. Okay. <laughs> um, so, so after Kansas City, um, I got into the University of Miami's uh, jazz program down there, and I kind of started switching over into composing and writing and arranging. So it was a it was a gradual process. I was still playing. Um, I, I, I think I talked about this in one other in one other podcast actually, but uh, it was one of these weird things where I went there, I applied, I got accepted into the jazz drama performance program, and then the scholarship money dried up. And then they basically said, hey, I see that you also submitted all this arranging stuff in your package. Are you interested in switching over to this degree program, which was the uh, like the Jazz Studies arranging program? So I kind of got pushed into that sort of by luck. <laughs> and uh, I think it was the right call in the end. I would say, considering you're yeah. at this point. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So that was, that was definitely one of those life moments for me where I, uh, I kind of felt like the... Uh, the pull of, you know, you have to follow where your life is taking you, you know? Right. 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 Cause I think it was, it was probably like, what's here at that time. I've been out to Los Angeles a couple of times for some music programs out here. So I played out here and I kind of started seeing what the scene was like. And I saw the studio stuff and some of the like arrangers and film composers and all that kind of stuff. So I had like a pretty good inkling of what was going on out here. Um, and I wanted to get out here, but I didn't quite know how to go about that at first. Um, so yeah, once I kind of got, I, I feel like I, I got my nerve up essentially after being in Miami and like really taking the arranging part of it more seriously. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. 
Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. I'm so glad you said that because my biggest, uh, you know, mission here with the career musician is to show other career musicians how to build a sustainable career, right? Right. And it takes tenacity. And you you mentioned nerve, and it's true. Yeah. When you make a big move, you need that. You need nerves of steel. You know, you got to. Yeah. Hey, I'm gonna you need nerves of steel, or you need to be a dumb kid. You know, it's <laughs> <laughs> kind of the same thing, maybe, but. Yeah. So tell us about that, because I think a lot of listeners will benefit from how you went from Miami in the in the arranging program to coming out here and actually cutting your teeth as a real life orchestrator arranger for some of the biggest projects. Right. Um, so it definitely it was not like a one step process. It wasn't like I finished school and then packed in my bags and moved. Um, I stayed in Miami for another two years gigging down there. Um, and like, I ended up touring with Engelbert Humpernick <laughs> for like about nine months going over, like I did some world tours and saved us some money, which was in the end, very helpful. <laughs> so I did that. Um, and then I kept seeing other, other students that were in my program, move out to Los Angeles and kind of start to get their feet in. Um, actually, I, I think we talked about this at the, at Tim's party, but Andrew Sinovic, the, uh, the LA session guitar player, we were in the same program. He, he moved out immediately. He didn't waste any time. <laughs> Um, so I saw him kind of doing well and, you know, he was one of the first people I got back in touch with when I eventually did get up the nerve to, to come out to LA. Um, but yeah, I saw him and then there was, um, another guy, Mark Dennis from my program that moved out uh, and, you know, everybody's just, you know, he's got to do it. <laughs> so I, I saw, okay, these guys, these guys are doing it. They're, uh, you know, they're still here after like a year or so. So, um, so yeah, after like a year or two, I applied for, um, there was a music program at UCLA called the Henry Mancini Institute, which is this sort of like month long scholarship program where they accept like a full, it's just like an orchestra with a with a big band inside of it. So they also had like saxophones and everything. Mm. And then I got accepted as a student composer there. Um, so I got to stay at UCLA for a month. Um, I rented like a, uh, what was like a little guest house in Burbank um, that a friend of mine recommended <laughs> that he was staying and he was moving out. So I kind of looked into this little place in Burbank. Um, and then, yeah, I moved in at the same time I was doing the program out there. Very cool. Very cool. So once you got set up out here, how long did it take to get immersed into the scene? Quote unquote? Um, I mean, honestly, not too long. Um, the Henry Mancini scene that I mentioned was actually this like great entryway into the whole world of like LA studio musicians, because you had all these mentors coming in. Like I got to meet Andy Martin, the session trombonist. He came out, he was one of the teachers. Um, I met uh, Gordy Hobb is a film composer out here. Um, that's a very good friend of mine now, but he kind of introduced me as well. He was a former alumni of that program as well. So I got to meet people that, that had just, you know, recently moved out that were doing well. And then you got to meet like the elder statesmen. Um, I met, uh, Vince Mendoza, the, uh, the arranger, very well known. Um, I met him at the program. I met Marie Schneider. I got to work with her for a week. So there was like all these great people you got to come out there and get talking with and then they're also you're seeing all the student musicians coming in and out doing private lessons so you get to meet all them and you you know kind of get to get a grasp of what's going on and on top of that you know some of the players that were in the program were already living in los angeles kind of already having their feet in so that was also kind of helpful once you made friends with those people you kind of saw what they were doing and then they would call you for things and you would call them for things and you know little by little you're you're starting to get some gigs going that's awesome man so how did you end up meeting Tim Davies throughout this experience? Um, I met Tim through Andrew, actually. Um, Andrew invited me out to, uh, to see Tim's band at a, uh, we were trying to remember the name of this club, but it was just a little club in Culver City, like on Washington Boulevard that, uh, that no longer exists, but he was out there playing. Um, I think multiple people have recommended I should get a hold of Tim because um, you know, we're with Big Bad Writers. He was doing orchestration, copying, conducting, kind of a little bit of everything. Um, he came out of the USC program. Um, he's Australian as we all know. <laughs> um, I, I'm actually, I'm not entirely sure how long he'd been in the States at that point, but I met him pretty quickly. Um, when I moved out here, I moved to Los Angeles in 2006, I think. Um, so I, I think I either met him in that year or like early 2007. Got it. Got it. And yeah, because Tim, he had, like you said, he had his own big band for a while. Does he still, yeah. he still does. I mean, it's, it's kind of the same status as my band right now. We're like, 
we haven't re- <laughs> reconfigured it post COVID yet. Right. And we've been busy doing other things that actually pay us money. So it's, <laughs> it's difficult to find the time to go, you know, go pay to play at a club where we're losing money to be there, you know, but, but it's nice to have passion projects too, you know? Yeah. Oh, it's, it's so important. It, it really is, man. Talk about that. You know, tell, tell listeners why you feel that way, because I think that is a key component in what we do. Um, at least for me, I mean, I get, I don't want to say I get bored doing like the stuff that I do because it's, for the most part, it's pretty fulfilling. You know, I get to work on all these great products. I get to be in front of orchestras all over the world in Los Angeles. Um, so that part is really cool, but a lot of it kind of feels the same after a while. You know, you play, you orchestrate one film score and then you do another one and like, they're all not sort of the same, but like there's a certain sameness to like the workflow and everything you're doing. And it's, you know, you always have these like crazy time crunches right at the end of the project and it gets a bit, uh, soul crushing and sometimes just, you know, one after the other, uh, which, you know, of course these are good problems to be busy, but, uh, at some point you need to get back to actually making music or writing music or kind of getting back to the things that kind of drew you into music. Um, so for me, that was always big band jazz. Um, so that was one of the first things I did when I moved out here, I started a big band. Um, we started rehearsing with music musicians union, local 47, um, you know, I started meeting players and then put, to- put together a band with, uh, another friend of mine out here, a saxophone player named Alex Budman. Um, so we got that band going. That was like the original incarnation of the band, the, uh, the Bugman Levy Orchestra. And then uh, we did one album back in 2012, I think. Um, and then I've been looking for, well, I guess basically since 2012, we're like, I should probably do another record at some point, you know? Uh, but I, I just remember like, this was like a lot of work and it cost a lot of money to do it. And I kept looking for an excuse, like what what is important enough, you know, to put the time and money into doing another one. So I was kind of looking in the background for something that would be for like a really cool project to do. And then uh, eventually I came up with that idea to uh, redo Pulse the Planets for uh, for Big Band Jazz. Planets Reimagined. I love it. Yeah. That's, you started that in 2019, 2020? Um, yeah, I think 19. Yeah. Okay. Well, maybe, or maybe like, like December 18, but yeah, basically 19. Gotcha. Gotcha. It's killer, man. It's a beautiful project. And uh, you talk talk about the Grammy process. What was that like? Uh, obviously, you were nominated for the Grammy Award, and was that something that you set out to do initially, or did it was it by happenstance, or did you happen to talk to somebody who was like, "Hey, you should submit," or you know, how did that? Um, no, it was, it was definitely not by happenstance. Um, it was definitely a goal. <laughs> um, I mean, part of the reason that. I did the record and why did it? This is besides the fact that uh, the planet is very meaningful to me. It's also a piece of music that as far as I can tell is very meaningful to other people. And it's very, it's also a public domain, which basically allows the project to happen. So there's no copyright issues on being able to do an arranging project of that sort. Um, so once I kind of had all that in my head, it's like, okay, this is something that I love. I know a lot of other people love it. I think I can do something unique with it. And it's got this, like, you know, it's, it's got some intellectual property that people are familiar with, you know, so it's got a little, there's a, there's a catch there, you know, people can go, okay, I know that as opposed to just releasing a bunch of music no one's heard of. So that, that was my original thought that like, if I do this, I'm hoping, you know, I, I know there's other people that like, like the same sort of stuff that I do. You know, obviously people out here in the film industry love the, love that music. I think all of us kind of grew up listening to that, that got us into film music. Um, so that was kind of my original intent of doing it. And then when it came around for Grammy time, um, I had the record label submit it for the Grammys. Um, and then after that, then it's just, kind of just getting on Facebook, there's all these like little underground Grammy groups you can join where you can like share your music. And, you know, then there's just all the, uh, just, you know, mailing lists and all the usual stuff you have to do as a musician to try to get people interested in the project. So, right. Yeah. There's all that stuff. And then, you know, just on top of that, when I originally released the record, I made all these like videos to go on YouTube to go with it of like, you know, you can like follow along with the score um, then I did like a, one of those like quarantine big band videos where I filmed each person playing, um, you know, their part on it. And then you've got like a the little like, uh, um, um, what was that game show called in the, uh, the eighties with the Hollywood squares, you know, like the Hollywood squares version of a big band. Yeah. 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 So I, I, did, I made one of those videos, um, which is also fine. Cause I got to learn how to do some video editing and then final cut pro, which was brand new to me. Gotcha. So sorry. Um, I just clicked on your YouTube and that was the music that you heard. So sorry. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Uh, okay. So that's, I'm glad you brought that up. Yes. So it's, your yeah. YouTube channel is Jeremy Levy. Um, 
I was going to ask you now, how much of that work did you outsource or did you, or did you do yourself? Both. I did it all myself. Yeah. Video production. You did all that work. And then also the marketing and pr promotional work you did yourself as well. Yeah. Wow. Kudos to you. Thanks. <laughs> Not an easy task. <laughs> yeah, I I, uh, I didn't hire a publicist until until the Grammy nomination came out. <laughs> and once the, once the, the nomination came out, then I hired a publicist to uh, to help get some press and really get the word out to try to hopefully win the Grammy, um, which didn't happen. But I think it was still very helpful to hire a publicist because it really spread around. You know, got lots of interviews and got to do some podcasts and got some little, little news stories going on the internet. So it was all in all a very good experience. That's right. You got a quite a bit of uh, SEO, you know, uh, yeah. at the top of the page when you type it yeah. in. It pops right up, man. Yeah. yeah. Thought it worked. Yeah. And then I, I think around that time, too, I also had to redo my website. For whatever reason, I, I had a custom website that was done maybe like eight years ago. And I think like the programming language or something behind like the system for it like, was no longer working and like I couldn't get it updated anymore. <laughs> so like, you know what, like, you just redo your site and, like on Squarespace. <laughs> so I ended up, had to undertake that all at the same time too, which actually made it much easier to kind of do all the press stuff because then I could kind of very quickly get my website up and running and do new stuff. And I could do like all the web shop stuff as well, which is I had to do separately before. So that was all, I think, a good problem to have in the end. I think it's really smart. And the reason why I ask about it is because there's so many career musicians who are also artists like yourself. And yeah. oftentimes we get overwhelmed with all of the peripheral work that's to be done, you know, uh, but I love the fact that you did it yourself. Now, that being said, talk about the process of time managing all of that work. How did you do that? Was that something that you said, hey, I'm going to build this little, you know, calendar and this is how I'm going to tackle it? Or did it just kind of evolve over time? Um, I think it probably mostly evolved over time. I mean, I had certain deadlines I had to line up for like for when the actual like album release came out. I, had, I wanted to have that video ready to go. The, uh, you know, the Hollywood Squares <laughs> video, if you will. Um, so I had that, like I started preparing. I think I started working on that maybe like three months prior to the release date. Um, so I was kind of, you know, like, let's see, I'm trying to remember the whole process now. Cause like we didn't mix and master. And then there's probably maybe like a two month period after all that was sent off to the record label while they did all their stuff and, you know, sent out the distributors and all that kind of stuff. So I think once I had the final masters, then I went and took the stems, sent those out to the players, had them mime along to it on their own videos at home. And then I, you know, reconfigured all the audio back together and then synced up all the videos and then did some whatever fun editing to go with it. So I mean, honestly, that that music video probably took more time than almost anything else. Like, it was incredibly time-consuming because I didn't really know how to do it yet. Yeah, and 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 that's smart that you did. You synced up all the audio first, and then you built a two-track audio file, right? Yeah. And then you did all of the video editing on top of that. Yeah, I mean that the video. It's one of those things where some people actually have the players like actually record what they're doing with the video. Um, which is, is fine, but I just spent all this money to do a professional recording, so I was going to use that recording. Yeah, smart. <laughs> so yeah, like the, the yeah the audio in that recording, it's it's just it's rough. The uh, the final CD, and then the players are are miming along to it, which if you look carefully, you can tell a couple times. Gotcha, gotcha. But the yeah, so it was, it was essentially a music video. Okay, well the naked eye can't tell. Yeah, but that's that's awesome. Hi, this is Jeremy Levy, and you're listening to the Career Musician with Nomad. Blasting the stereotype of musicians. Follow us at the Career Musician Podcast. Download, subscribe, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any of your favorite podcast platforms. All right, so so that's killer. So so again, what I'm trying to portray here to the listener is that you know you have a lot of of high, you know, brow, so to speak, <laughs> marquee projects on your resume, but mm -hmm. also in, in, at the same time, you've been pursuing your own passion project. And I think that's a really important key factor to, you know, to drive home. Uh, and basically you do it in your downtime, right? That, yeah. That's the thing. That's what we all do. Right. Yeah. Pretty much. I mean, I mean, the funny thing for me is I, I also, I took this project on also after um, we had our first child, which I think to me also kind of helped me 
keep a little bit of sanity where I had like this one little thing that was just for myself, you know, as I'm dealing with all the other life changes of having a newborn and all the other stuff. So once we got like, you know, childcare situation set up and my wife went back to work and, you know, once I had a little bit of quiet time, we had a nanny at the house. I was kind of able to concentrate time just on that. Like this is, this is my thing to kind of regain some control in my life. You know what I mean? Man, that's perfect. So it was, it was, it was almost therapeutic in that way. Yes, I know exactly what you mean. Absolutely. Uh, yesterday, I took an hour just to start practicing in the middle of my workday. And I just nice. played through some things. And I was like, wow, this actually feels really nice. You know, like just yeah. playing whatever I wanted to play, right? Yeah. Not, not for the sake of the job, quote unquote. Yeah, definitely. All right. So now let's shift gears and let's move, up, let's move back over to the job, the, the stuff that keeps the food on the table and the roof yeah. over. <laughs> so um your credits you, you as an orchestrator and an arranger uh in addition to your side projects and as a composer so you know you're juggling quite a bit what comes first where does your heart lie or is it literally just whenever the phone rings you do whatever they say <sighs> i mean I'll, I'll say sort of the latter um but i say no to more things now um just because Thankfully, I have enough things coming in where I don't have to say yes to absolutely everything now. Um, so I, I think that's that's mostly it. I mean, the majority of my work is doing orchestration for films and TV gift shows and video games that's, or streaming shows now, too. Um, so that's kind of the majority of what I do. Um, like that probably pays the bills, I would say, like probably 85 to 90 percent of it. Um, and then after that, then it's doing arrangements for orchestras like all over the world. I, I write for the Metropole Orchestra over in the uh, Netherlands. Like you mentioned, I've written for a bunch for the uh, the National Symphony Orchestra. Um, I've got some charts. Um, I think Lettuce is right now going around touring doing this new Simone project. I, I did some charts for that, uh, which I think that actually originally came from the NSO concert we did with them because Tim Tim did some, I did some, and then she had some other charts from some other composers. But uh, but yeah, she's been touring with that, and every now and then we'll see my name pop up on something. Well, that's so awesome. I did her DVD uh, special for PBS, the Nina Oh, nice. Project. Yeah. Oh, cool. Well, that's awesome. So I was playing some of your charts. I think so. Very possibly. Yeah. There you go. There you go. That's awesome. That's another common connection we have. Yeah. Okay, cool. So tell us about then, your, you know, a day in the life of an orchestrator uh, arranger for film and TV stuff. What's that like? Um, so... Do you want like the actual full day or just the the music part of the day? Man, tell us, give so us the, the real stuff, man. Okay. <laughs> so the, the full like shit. <laughs> okay, so the real life version is, and again, I have a four year old, so this yeah. this plays heavily into my life. Um, but the real, I like wake up. Okay, so if I'm swamped, I'll wake up at like four in the morning and get started working before the kids up. Um, if I'm not, I'll wake up at like six or six thirty. Wake her up. My wife is also she's a VP for a, like a huge medical group, so she has her own very important life going on. So it's usually she's usually out the door like pretty early to beat traffic. Um, so I'm doing all the childcare stuff in the morning, getting her fed. Off to she's she's in uh, preschool right now, so I get off to preschool in the morning. And I usually start my actual work day at like eight. Um, so I have like essentially eight to like five or five thirty where no one's bothering me hmm. outside of like work people bothering me. <laughs> um, so that's basically what the day looks like from that. So then once like, I know what I should start working again, then it's usually seeing kind of like what's on the docket. Um, so right now I've got a couple of raging projects. Um, I just finished, um, what do we have? We had a, a movie that I'm probably not at liberty to say yet. Cause I don't think it's been announced that we're working on it. Um, but Tim and I and Jordan, we all did some stuff that was a uh, busy recording for the past couple of weeks. Um, so we're done with that now. Um, that was kind of consuming my life nonstop for like about three weeks. Um, and now I'm back to some arranging projects. Um, I've got another little film thing coming up uh, with Tim here next week. Um, and then let's see here. Remember, like other stuff coming up. It's uh, didn't we just, got, didn't we just recently work on Maya together? Yes. Right. Yeah. That, that so okay. I guess if we want to talk about like the uh, the all-consuming time crunch. So this is a series that Tim was doing the music for. It's called Maya and the Three for Netflix. Have you talked about this on your podcast or? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. okay. Sorry. Yeah. I, I have, I haven't been along at home for all of these. Um, <laughs> well, anyway, so the show, um, I think it was, it was, it was nine episodes that we did or, nine episodes, or 10, nine or 10 episodes. And it was like wall to wall music. Um, so I was orchestrating essentially all of the orchestral score for Tim, um, which I'm trying to remember like the final minute count was something like 300 minutes or something of score that we recorded. It's crazy. Wow. Um, 
So I did like almost all of it. Um, just because we had like we had a budget to work and I had to kind of manage where the money was going. <laughs> and you know, for it to be worth the time, I kind of had to make sure I got a majority of the chunk of uh, the orchestration. Then I had to farm out a little bit of it at the end to uh, one of our other guys, Lorenzo Carano. He did he did some. Um, I don't think Jordan actually ended up working on that one. He was doing some other stuff. Mm. Um, yeah. So like the whole thing, like when I'm working with Tim, we kind of have like uh, it's for the most part pretty top down. Like uh, usually, if it's Tim gets the gig if, as an orchestrator, then he kind of farms out where it goes to. So usually, I'm next in line to do cues, and then we have like two or three people doing like assistant work. Um, and then when things get really busy, then they end up orchestrating as well or doing other higher level stuff. It just kind of depends on how busy everyone is. Um, and then if I get a gig that comes in on my own, then I'll usually see if Tim wants to help out too, is because he's, he's throwing me so much work. I feel like it's kind of uh, obligatory to at least offer if he's not busy, but uh, he's, he's so busy now. It's not usually happening. You know? Yeah. He's, he's like pretty wall to wall busy. So yeah. tell the listeners about the process between, uh, you know, well, the process from getting the, the brief, you know, the, you, you now so let's say Tim is the orchestrator, you know, he understands the job. He does a mock-up, he sends it to you to flesh out. Tell us about that process, you know, the, your guys' workflow. Um, yeah, right, so on my ass, so Tim is a composer, um, so he's writing on the music, he sends me, um, so he's got the full orchestral demo, the stuff with, you know, the, the synthesizers on the computer. Um, I think I think there might actually be some, I'm trying to remember, I think some of your guitars were already put into it by then, by the time it got to me. It was kind of a mishmash. It was I, I didn't join in the process on Maya until maybe like three or four months in after they had been writing. So I kind of had to get to speed quickly when it came time for orchestration because there was a whole thing where we had to get all the solos prepped. So there was you playing guitar, and then we had um, this, this girl Ashley that was doing all of the uh, the woodwinds, playing all the flutes, um, which is another whole thing. We, we think we talked about this quite a bit at the party. Yeah, um, and she was on the podcast as well. Oh, awesome! Great. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So yeah, she did a uh, it's a, a bang up job on that. She played I don't know like you know ten or fifteen different flutes of various ancestries from all around the world. Um, right. It was really cool. Um, it'll be interesting when when people actually get to hear the shows and kind of see what the solo thing sounds like. Uh, but yeah. So anyway, as far as the workflow, uh, Tim sends me uh, again what a MIDI file coming from his Cubase file. So basically, the MIDI file is just you know like the sort of general purpose whatever, so I can load it into any other sequencer. So I load that up, load up all the audio. Um, and then at this point, one of the assistants, um, so either Lorenzo or um, another girl who met at the party, Sarah Lynch, um, she was doing a lot of the MIDI prep as well. So the two of them basically handled all that kind of stuff. So the files were coming from Tim. They would load it into a digital performer. They would uh, clean up all the MIDI so it you know, made a little bit more sense. And then they would import that into um, Finale, which is their scoring software. And then make a sketch of that from there. And then I get sent the sketch and then I orchestrate for the final ensemble and kind of sort out whatever uh, difficulties might have arisen from the computer file to the real world. So kind of the, the main job, you know, an orchestrator on film products, you hear you, people will be surprised. You know, they oftentimes like the idea is like, oh, the composer writes like a piano sketch or something and they send you a piano sketch, which is, you know, very, very far from the truth. Now <laughs> they send you like a very detailed orchestral arrangement that's already basically mocked up. And it sounds great. But if you would just play that with an orchestra, it would sound like 60% of the way there because it's programming a computer file is very different from, you know, actually writing out for a full orchestra. So the orchestra's job is really sorting out all the detail work and uh, making everything sound as good as possible. So that like the vision of the computer file is completely realized in the real world. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. That's what I was going to say. Uh, it's, I mean, just talk about dynamics, right? I'll, yeah. A good portion of your work lies in the dynamics of the piece, right? It's in the dynamics. It's also in like knowing what to throw out. Like sometimes 
Like, and, you know, you have these computer demos and Tim was always a special case because he's already thinking about the orchestration more so in the, in the, you know, in the end, in the back of his head. Um, So he's not usually going to be overriding too much, but, you know, there's still cases where like they get revisions and like they get asked to add things and all of a sudden you have like 30 violin parts or something, you know? So like the job of the orchestrator, we're also kind of playing studio engineer to kind of get ahead of the game a little bit. So in the case of, if we're going to be recording it, we kind of come up with a game plan um, ahead of time, kind of figuring out like, okay, we're going to do this pass on this overdub. You kind of figure out what's going to go where and how to do it. And like, it is in as few passes as possible to save recording time. Um, so you're kind of playing, a, it's a little bit of a puzzle game in that way. Right. And at this level, like you said, to save on recording time, because everything is on the contract, you're talking about union scales and uh, a lot of, you know, studio time and engineer. Yeah. There's such, there's so many staff, right? There's so much staff. Yeah. Budgets are legit. And you really have to take that into consideration. Yeah. The So the interesting thing also, like on Maya, so again, like I said, there was something like 300 minutes or something of music, but we didn't have 300 minutes worth of recording time. You know what I mean? So uh, there was like a master Google doc that had everything broken down. And there's like little columns with like check marks for like each, each like section of the orchestra. You had like the soloists, you had the so woodwind soloists, then you had brass, then you had strings, you had your, all your guitars, everything was checked off. Like one is recorded. And then like also in there, we'll have notes of like, okay, this is going to be optional or it will record strings from here to here or only the violin melody. So like we're trying to figure out ahead of time, what can stay samples? What is like the most important to get live? What is the least important? And like at the end, you've got like, essentially got the entire thing worked out. And then on the scores, of course, you need to have all the music there just in case you do have extra time because you don't want to get to the end of the session to find out you have like an hour left of record time that you can be getting stuff because you're paying for it. Uh, so I made sure I orchestrated that everything. And then there'll be like little notes at the top saying record so-and-so, you know, measures like, you know, five through 16, only need the violins, don't need to record like the short strings or something. But then it's all there. That way if we have time, we can go back and still grab stuff. And uh, it, was, it was surprising to see what we were able to get. I think we, we got more brass than we were thinking we were going to get, which is nice because the brass samples are not as good as the string samples. Right. Uh, but in the end, it was just staying organized really allowed us to just maximize Tim's money, essentially. And, you know, on this product, you know, I, I owe Tim a lot in my career. So kind of everybody on the team just kind of really doubled down, just, just kind of kick ass, made sure he could get, you know, complete everything is full value of his, of his money coming out of the orchestra project, you know? That's right. I, I totally agree. Uh, I love Tim as well. He's such a great dude. Um, and you know, what was cool is that I was recording all of my guitar parts here at my studio. Yeah. Uh, even just as a guitarist, there were like four or five different, uh, yeah. genre styles. I was doing, you know, progressive heavy metal rock, right? Yeah. I was doing, you know, Spanish flamenco type stuff. And then I was doing like steel string acoustic, and then like some charango, uh, you know, yeah. stuff or, and then like twangy, you know, tell yeah. you right. And that's just the guitar part. Yeah. So I can't, like you said, Ashley with all her uh, pan flutes and different woodwinds. And then of course all the sections. So I think you hit it on the head when you said organization is the, is, is the key, right? If you're not organized, yeah. you're screwed. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it, it comes down from the top. I mean, you know, Tim and his assistant, Ryan, yeah. me, you know, they, uh, they stay on top of it from the beginning. And then as it comes down to me, when I'm starting to do the orchestrations and sorting out what's going to go, what, then I essentially add like an, an extra layer of organization on top of that to make sure that like, we don't get in the weeds at any point, you know? And then, like I said, if we do have bonus time, which we ended up having some extra time for the brass, then we were able to get more, more, more recorded than we uh, originally intended. So. And it just goes yeah, to show the importance of a good team. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's brilliant, man. Well, thank you for sharing your insight there. I'm sure there's many listeners who will really appreciate that and benefit from that. Uh, tell us about your projects on the horizon that you can talk about. Um, so, sir, um, I thankfully have like a little bit of downtime right now, which has been nice because we actually have like a, a little bit of traveling going on right now. Where I'm going to Chicago next week for a wedding. Nice. Um, so that'll be, I think the first time I've been in a plane in like almost two years. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Um, but other than that, I've got, uh, let's see here. We've got, I'm trying to think, I mean, the stuff that is actually coming up is, I don't think any of it's been announced yet. Um, I've got one project going on later this year for, uh, for Carlos Rafael Rivera, the, uh, the composer from the Queen's Gambit. That's right. Um, 
so we, we actually just did something for him here in town, which is really cool. He got to record the, the main titles for a, a Disney Plus show that is also as of yet unannounced, as far as I know of. I, I heard about that, and that's right. I won't yeah. mention no, but I did hear. Yeah, about- but that was that was really cool. We got it was it was fun too because we got to pull together like super quick, like super last minute. It was one of those things where like Carlos asked the the studio like, do we can we do this? Can we record live? Get the titles? This would be really cool. And they were like, hmm. Let me ask. <laughs> yeah, then like two days later, we're recording at Fox. There you go. That's awesome. And by the way, congratulations on the Queen's Gambit working with Carlos. Oh, yeah. Thanks. Uh, and actually, Carlos is going to be, I'm going to be interviewing him next week. Oh, awesome. Yeah. So you guys, I got the whole team. I feel very, awesome. very grateful to have the whole team on board here. <laughs> nice. Yeah, Carlos is the best. He's, uh, he's one of my favorite people. He's so nice. Oh, that's awesome. I haven't met him yet, so I'm looking forward to that. I'm a huge fan of his work and, of course, The Queen's Gambit and, and, and everything else you've done. I mean, your credits are beautiful, man. You know, Disney, uh, Frozen, the Lego movie, Ant-Man, the list goes on. Like, I, and I love how you say you, you also arrange for, you know, Metropole Orchest, the BBC, and, you know, all of the, uh, the National Symphony Orchestra stuff. So, uh, again, kudos to you, Jeremy, on a, on a great career, a nice versatile, you know, a nice variety in there. And uh, for, you know, making it happen. I love that, that tenacity, which leads. Yeah, thanks. Absolutely. Which leads me to the final question I'll ask. How do you define success? Because, you know, a lot of us interpret it differently. And uh, what words of wisdom would you, would you add to that? You know? Um, I mean, I think success is mostly just, if you're able to constantly stay busy, you know, I feel like that's a, a pretty good level of success. You know, if you're staying busy, um, you feel like you're not like scrambling to pay your bills. Like in my case, you know, like I'm, I own a house, I have a child. I feel like I can provide for all this along with my wife between the two of us. We do, we're doing good. Um, so, you know, I feel at least in that respect, pretty comfortable, you know, the work always comes and goes, you never know, you know, the ups and downs of where things lead you. But for the most part, I feel like I've, I've done a good job and, uh, and the things I've done in the past, it's led to more work. Um, I think that's really all I can do. It, you know, if you do good work, then it, you know, work begets more work. And it's, you know, it's all relationships with other people at some point. Isn't that the truth? I always say that work begets work. I love it. Yeah. I mean, because at least like with what, what I do is, is so much is just, you know, I have relationships like with Tim and then with other clients. And then Tim has passed me. Like I met Carlos through Tim. He's one of, like a great client friend of mine now. You know, you, you have all these people to work with and, you know, you start off like at least with Carlos, like um, the first time I did for him was, uh, was Godless on Netflix with that Western and, uh, you know, that was my first, I think it was one of my first times doing, uh, like the full on, um, um, lead orchestrator role for that. So I, I got pretty fortunate. I was able to do the whole thing for Carlos and then we've been just con- continuing working together since then. Um, but yeah, you know, it's, if things work out, then you just kind of keep working together. And, uh, at some point you have a career. <laughs> I like that. At some point you have a career. That's good. Man. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know like when you put a finger on it, but like, you know, looking back, it's like, yeah, I, I have a career now. And like, you know, I've basically just been kind of doing the same thing to some degree for like, you know, almost 15 years. It just keeps growing. That's, you know, the beautiful thing, man. What would you do yeah. if you weren't a career musician? You think? Oh, I don't know. Um, it, it's a tough question. I mean, I, I did well in school. I mean, I'm, for the most part, I'm, I'm good with computers. I, I probably would, I guess, gone into computers and something, something with tech maybe. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't know really what that would have uh, entailed really. I mean, I, I was I was pretty stuck on music by, you know, like when I was 12. <laughs> so There you go. I know, right? Like I said, yeah. once the bug bites us, it's hard to get unbitten. Yeah. yeah. Hey, by the way, what's your favorite DAW to work in when you're uh, doing your primary orchestrating and arranging work? Um, uh, I mean, I'll, I'll give you three because <laughs> like, I, uh, there's not really like a favorite. Um, I mean, as much as people hate Pro Tools, I like Pro Tools when I'm doing like just for mixing work using audio only. Um, like I, I mixed, uh, this is something else we didn't mention, but like with the Big Man record, I also, I did all the, the editing and Pro Tools myself. So like I did like a, a big chunk of, uh, of that besides, you know, all the, like, you know, session producing and all that kind of stuff and that, but I also edited all the takes and did all the comping and all that kind of stuff, which is, I guess is my fault from working in all the film audio stuff. I know how to do that now, but that was something I couldn't give up. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I mean, honestly, I, I love pro tools in that world. It's, it's, I find it really enjoyable doing all that kind of stuff. Um, and then 
let's see here, when I'm doing orchestration, I work in Digital Reformer. Um, it's, it's got some really nice tools for MIDI editing. Um, and then when I'm sequencing demos, um, either Performer or Cubase, kind of depending on what's going on. If I'm working with other composers, a lot of times it'll be Cubase. Uh, if I'm by myself, it might be DP. Just kind of depends on what it's like. But yeah, usually DP is probably the, the one that I use the majority of the time. It sounds about right uh, for composers, especially DP and Cubase seems to be. Right? Yeah. 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 And then it really like begrudgingly uses Pro Tools in the background. Yeah. <laughs> well, like you said, I, I, I'm the same way. I love Pro Tools. Audio wise, I think it's the best, you know. Yeah. People people talk smack about it, but it's uh, if you're recording a band, I mean, what more could you want? Exactly. Exactly. Man, well, once again, Jeremy Levy, thank you so much, man. Where can everybody find you online? Right. Um, so my website is at www.jlevymusic.com. Um, and then you'll pretty much be able to find everything from there. I've got, you know, all the usuals, Facebook, Instagram, um, YouTube. There's links to all the social media stuff there. Um, yeah. And then, like, there's a there's a separate section there on my website for uh, all the big band stuff and the jazz records. And I've got a separate web shop if you're interested in buying music or buying arrangements, all that kind of stuff. So I've got all that up there. Awesome, brother. Thank you so much. Much success to you. All right. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Got it. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.